x is about uh, what is underpainted. That is what's um, what the original painting was about. So this is a painting. We'll we'll get into it, but um, this is the painting thought to be about the founding of Venice. Um, so the painting is in Venice. It's about the found um, the founding of Venice, and this is what J.M. will say is on the surface nothing less than earthly life in all its mysteries. Um, so there's a tempest, there's a storm, there's a mother and a child, and then this strange man here. What his relation to the mother and the child is, we don't know. Um, the x-rays will show things um, that were originally on the color. So that's something that we will get to. Um, but that also goes with the Tempest. Um, that is the Shakespeare play, which gets us Miranda um, making the happy sign. And um, with the idea of the Tempest in the cup that we talked about. Um, all right, people are have been asking, and I've been um, summarizing what actually happens in the Book of Ephraim over the course of the 18 years, and the summary recall is just that lives drift apart. Um, if you look at um, section O, for example, um, It turns out to be 10 years later. O's of mildest light glance through the years. Athens, this breathless August night. So there we are again, a reference to a date within the year, but it's also years later. O's of mildest light glance through the years. Um, O's of mildest light glance through the years. That's another version of the perfect circle in the scratched mirror. Um, this breathless August night, moon glow starts from scratches as my oval shovel glass tilting earthward by itself, the rider nodding in the rain's gone slack, converges with lamp lit, with, excuse me, with lamplight ten winters back. Um, do people know what a shovel glass is? No one? Um, you can get them at Crate and Barrel. They are mirrors, they're oval mirrors, um, not quite full length, three-quarter length, oval mirrors, um, on a pivot, on a frame. So the kind of thing that people move around easily, but they give you, um, and, and you, can, you can hide stuff. They're sort of a little bit like a screen. Um, so portable, but three-quarter length mirrors in oval. So can you picture that? You, um, so that's called, that, the technical name for that is a cheval mirror. Um, and what does cheval mean? Horse. Horse. So the idea is that this is a mirror that, whose name um, somehow comes from the idea from its being like a horse. I guess it would be something like, um, where it got the name I'm not sure, but it sort of makes sense. That is that it would be um, the way it can tilt back and forth would be like a horse coming towards you or a horse seen um, from the front. Um, but at any rate, that's what it's called. But here what we get then is the connection um, between horse and mirror. That is that one set of themes in the Book of Ephraim is 
horses in particular, horses and cats in particular, um, Maisie the cat and the, the um, divine horsemen who are the Loa or the divinities, um, that's why Maya Darren gives her book about um, voodoo, about Haitian voodoo, the title Divine Horseman. Urzuli rides her like a horse. Um, and um, on the other hand, the idea of mirrors. So here is this um, cheval glass tilting earthward by itself. So it just sort of lists forward. Its top tilts it earthward. So now it's reflecting the ground, not the heavens. The rider nodding and the rain's gone slack. That's what it looks like. Um, it's the, the pivot isn't tight. Um, and the moon glow that comes from that converges with lamplight 10 winters back. So now we're talking about 10 years before he's writing this. Um, and he's thinking of lamplight that he saw 10 winters back. Strato squats within the brilliant zero craning at his bare shoulder where a spot burns like fire, invisible to me. So what you need to know about Strato, who is not of the Dramatis Personae, but who is um, the subject of several of J.M.'s um, poems, is that he was um, a very good-looking um, young man uh, who Merrill had a long affair with um, in the 60s. And um, he wrote some poems about Strato. Eventually, he would write a poem after the Book of Ephraim where he gives you his full name. That's the title of the poem. But Strato is just a character um, in Merrill's life that we who have read all of Merrill, right, um, would know. Um, at the end of the poem, uh, Lost in Translation, which is in the Norton and which is a completely great poem, um, relatively short. Um, he, at the very end of it, he says, um, I'll just read you the last stanza, but nothing's lost, or else all is translation, and every bit of us is lost in it. Um, lost in translation, that title um, comes from a line of Robert Frost, who defined poetry. Do people know this definition of poetry? Poetry is what gets lost in translation. That is, you can translate everything except the thing that makes a poem poetry. Um, so, and this is a poem about looking for a translation of a poem, um, a poem that Merrill himself will eventually translate. So, now he says, uh, it's a poem by um, Paul Valery called Palm, P-A-L-M-E, which Merrill translated into English, but the great German poem Rilke translated it into German. And um, Merrill in Athens is trying to find the Rilke translation, which he can't. And he's wondering if he just made it up. Um, and, but mainly what Lost Translation is about is him at the age of 10 putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Um, the point being that um, it can sometimes feel like reading a James Merrill poem is putting a jigsaw puzzle together. <laughs> Um, so putting a puzzle together, figuring out what goes where, translating pieces of the puzzle in the, in the um, um, uh, literal sense of translate to move around. As, as does, do, do any of you know where the line, bless thee, bottom thou art translated, comes from? Midsummer, Midsummer Night's Dream. 
Yeah. So there it means transformed, but to translate literally means to carry over. Um, it's it's the same thing as transfer. Um, the late in translate is just the past participle of um, the fur in carry. Um, so. Um, one of the really neat things about this poem, actually, is that he never finds the Rilke translation of Valerie in the poem, um, but the poem has an epigraph, and the epigraph is um, a stanza from the Rilke translation. So, the, so in the poem, he doesn't find it, but the publication of the poem shows that eventually he has found it. Um, but nothing's lost, he says, or else all is translation, and every bit of us is lost in it, and then a parenthesis or found, I wander through the ruin of S now and then, wondering at the peacefulness. So S there is strato, at end of the parentheses, and then the last lines of the poem. And in that loss, a self-effacing tree, color of context imperceptibly rustling with its angel, turns the waste to shade and fiber, milk and memory. So that alludes to the Valerie poem. Um, there's a palm in the desert with an angel in it. Um, but it also alludes to the puzzle the 10-year-old JM is putting together, um, which takes place in a desert. And there's what he thinks is a palm tree, but it's actually just a piece of the puzzle cut out so it looks like a palm tree. But it's actually something else. And that's part of the translation as well. At any rate, I wrote him to say, S there at the end of Lost in Translation is that strato. And he wrote me back and said, um, yes, S is Strato. Um, if I thought he was a ruin when I wrote that poem, it must be because I hadn't seen him 10 years later, um, which is roughly a year uh, before I wrote him, um, when he was really a ruin. So um, Strato was this incredibly good-looking guy who Merrill had some um, very intense physical um, love for. So physical, but love. Um, that is, it's not that Strato, like DJ, was someone that he could um, have really intense conversations about um, poetry, psychoanalysis, um, history, um, classics, and so on with. But Strato was um, nevertheless this um, uh, giant figure in a part of his life. So now he's describing Strato in O. Um, Strato squats within the brilliant zero, craning at his bare shoulder, where a spot burns like fire invisible to me. Thinking, what? He studies his fair skin so smooth, so hairless. So there's Strato looking at his own skin. Another um, set of imagery uh, that really matters. Do you... I was going to talk about the line about how he's in the brilliant zero because he's in front of the mirror and the mirror is reflecting the light. Right, exactly. Um, and now it's reflecting the light. So the mirror itself is a zero, or the oval in the mirror, um, the perfect circle, is also reflecting right on Stratos. So there's a spot on his shoulder which burns, quote, like fire, unquote. Um, now remember the first message they get from the other world is from, no, before that, Simpson, and what does he say? Oh, help. Help, oh, save me, help, oh, save me. No, 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 that's, uh, Hans is his patron, but that's Simpson. Um, 
So Simpson is um, calling for help and for saving. Do you remember from what? Fire. Fire. Yeah, so a warehouse burns. He's just died in a warehouse fire, and he doesn't even realize he's dead yet when he calls help, oh, save me. Where did they get the idea, assuming that this is all projection of what burns in their own skulls? Where did they get the idea of a fire? As, well, help, remember it's H-E-L-L-P. We didn't talk about that, but it's almost as though the first word, the first four letters they get from the other wor world are the words are the letters that spell out hell, and then it's like they quickly add a P so that they transmogrify a word they don't want, hell, into help, misspelt, but still. Um, but what, in, um, what would prime them, as we neuropsychologists say, to think of fire the first time they're at the Ouija board? Do you remember? They have a fire in their room, and um, Ephraim says that's a good idea to light a fire. But even before that, look at B for a second, or don't. I'll just read it to you. Um, the backdrop in Stonington. The dining room at Stonington. Walls of ready-mixed matte flame is the name of the color. A witty shade, now watermelon, now sunburn. So the, um, they've just painted the dining room um, with this ready-mixed color very um, 50s maybe, called Flame. They got a can of a color called Flame, which is a witty shade, um, which is to say that it's not a single color, but as you, as you streak it on the wall, sometimes it's bright red, sometimes it's duller red, and it's Flame. It's Flame. The dining room is Flame colored. It's, so it's not like that. It's not just this sort of dull uniformity, but it's um, just colorful changes. So kind of um, not quite mixed, but um, what does he call it? A witty shade. A witty shade. What does shade mean? Ghost. Yes. Who, what is Ephraim if not a witty shade? So the whole idea of fire, what is the first task Ephraim gives them? Yes. In, no, sorry. <laughs> Cyprus, I'm, how interesting that you bring Cyprus up. Capri. Um, that is, there's a box which Tiberius want, quickly wants, quickly burned. Um, so there they are in this dining room, um, and there's fire in the paint on the wall, um, perhaps in the fireplace. So then they think of um, some guy dying of fire, that's Simpson, and then the witty shade finally appears to them over the Ouija board, um, but the witty shade is already the way they're thinking of the, the paint in the room they're surrounded by, and says, you need to burn a box. Um, and they're in a box-like room. So you can see how this is all putting together um, just things that are prompted for them in the environment. Do you guys know about Darren Brown? Um, do you ever watch him? Um, so you should Google Darren Brown. You really should, D-E-R-R-E-N, Brown. Um, I actually watched the change blindness one like two years ago. Oh, yeah. 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 I thought it was actually dumb. <laughs> you thought it was dumb? I thought that it was experimentally just, like, not good. Well, <laughs> why not good? I have to watch that now. So they're, they're basically not that one. But the thing is, they just go around and they ask people directions. Yeah. And then the person who's asking directions, like, switches with another person. Right. 
while a mirror goes past them. Yeah, while something's going on, another person doesn't notice. And they, their whole point is that this means people are blind to change. But the thing is, like, if this was you and this was happening to you, you would have two options. Either you have to assume you just weren't insane. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. That's so not a... Just, but he did do this, I'll just tell you this amazing thing he did, just so you see how prompts work. Um, this is, so he pretended that he was um, a guy with a London zoo who wanted, who went to Saatchi and Saatchi, the great advertising firm, and wanted um, them to just, uh, was thinking about giving them an account to do um, an advertising campaign for the London zoo. You've seen that? Can you describe it? Um, yeah, he wants them to, to design some sort of... Uh, Slogan and poster, yeah. Um, and so in the car as... The so they just drive over. <laughs> Sorry, you're, you're, you're going to get the punchline too early. You just tell it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so they drive over, these two young advertising executives, you know, hot shots, um, they don't even know what it is they're, they're going to be doing something for it. He just says, look, I want to test you. Come and drive over. I'm going to have someone pick you up. Um, and um, he doesn't, we don't know why he's filming them or what the excuse is, but at any rate, he's filming them as they drive over. It's a 20-minute drive to his office. Um, they go up to the conference room. He says, okay, here's what I want. You know, it's the London Zoo. We want to get more young people to come to the London Zoo. Um, so why don't you guys brainstorm for 20 minutes? And then he leaves. And so there's a hidden camera, and you see them brainstorming. And 20 minutes later, they're done brainstorming. And he comes in, and they say, OK, here's what we want to do. And they produce this, basically this poster, which will be the heart of the advertising campaign. And he listens, and he's all, it's all really interesting. And in the back, there's a covered easel. Um, and then when they're done, he <coughs> opens the easel, and it's essentially the same thing that they have just brainstormed. And they're just totally flabbergasted. That is, that they just came up with this stuff. And yet, there it is. Um, so then he redoes, in slow motion, the key parts of their trip over. And what he's done is, um, is the whole way their plants on the street, stuff that's going on on the street, that he's planted, sort of like a David Blaney thing. Um, where there's someone who's selling a newspaper, and the headline of the newspaper, you know, has has some just lurid headline, but it has a couple of key words that have to do with animals. Um, and there's someone selling balloons, um, and there are a whole lot of balloons there, and kids yelling around balloons. And there are about seven or eight things on the way over that just look like street life, um, that these two advertising guys have are not noticing at all, um, except they are, that they just don't know that they are. And all of this gets, <coughs> primes them to put the stuff that they've just seen over the last 20 minutes together into the advertising slogan. And his point is that even that advertising affects everything. You think you're having your own thoughts, but all these subliminal messages are hitting you all the time and affecting what you think. And he does this to people whose business <coughs> is to do that. Um, and it's quite amazing. The other thing he does, I mean, he's really worth watching on YouTube. He did this other amazing thing where he um, bought lots of incredibly expensive stuff with uh, blank pieces of paper. Um, and I mean, he's just incredibly convincing. But he would, um, basically he went into a jewelry shop and he bought a $5,000 ring, and this is all on film. 
um, and he gave the guy um, just just a sheaf of blank dollar, you know, U.S. currency sized sheets of paper, but they were blank. And the guy gave him the ring, and he walked out. Um, he also bought a hot dog that way with a blank sheet of paper. The hot dog's less impressive. The hot dog's less impressive, <laughs> no, but they're more like more <laughs> impressive. I feel like I feel like a hot dog vendor would actually be a little bit more. Yeah. But they're like four. There are three or four things that he buys that way. And obviously, he's not showing you the failures. But um, still, any success of this sort is pretty amazing. Um, so it's basically about things you can do to convince people um, that things are normal when, in fact, you're manipulating them. And Darren Brown is amazing at that. Yeah. I mean, to get back to something related to the text. That's really. Um, no, I know. I yeah. know. But I'm saying, you're, you're, what you're suggesting is that all of these things that they're experiencing through Ephraim is kind of a sort of self-expression. Yeah, and it's and primed also by trivial things in their environment. Okay, I mean this is an argument that I wanted to make with Darren's Divine Horseman as well. Uh huh. She the absolutely, other Darren, absolutely not Darren Brown. Huh? Not Darren Brown, the Maya, Maya Darren. Darren. Wow. Maya Darren Brown, that would be a good name. Um, she totally rejects that though. She uh -huh. says that's not what's happening at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and they may totally be rejecting it also. That is to say. Um, they're really, I mean, this is like Turn of the Screw, which is that um, it could, the question is which is cause and which is effect. So why a witty shade now, watermelon now, sunburn? Um, well, they may have been prompted to paint the dining room that way because Ephraim wants the stage set for him. That is, there may be things that are going on in them which are precisely there in order to facilitate this communication. Um, so, it, so one possibility is, you know, if this were a mystery novel, you could have the detective saying, see, it was all in their own minds. And if it were a non-supernatural mystery novel, that would explain it. If it were a supernatural mystery novel, it would turn out that the supernatural figures had planted this in their own in their minds for a reason. Um, and Merrill is careful not to um, choose one over the other, um, but at the same time, it probably gives you a sense that the real JM um, is, um, of course, skeptical that any of this is real, but he doesn't care. That's what it means to be a poet: is to spend your life in fiction, and doesn't mean that you believe the literal truth of the fiction you're spending your life in. It doesn't matter. You know, some of the poems he wrote after he finally was done with this, this, this whole project took um, close to 10 years of after, um, after um, uh, the Book of Ephraim, which obviously took 20 years to write, but after that doing The Changing Light at Sandover, and then there's some stuff afterwards, a little bit more after The Changing Light at Sandover. Then he goes back to writing lyrics. And those lyrics are lyrics about being mortal and dying and being dead forever. Um, he has an amazing poem called Grass, um, which he wrote 10 years before he died. Um, it's like the kimono. He likes to start books of his poems with very short, with very short poems. So this one is, I don't know if I can do the whole thing. The river irises draw themselves in enough to have seen their day. So that's grass. The river irises draw themselves in enough to have seen their day. Irises are a kind of grass. Then the aris of evening also drawn. So aris, you know, from Hamlet means 
remember that's what Polonius is hiding behind? Oh, curtain. Yeah, it's a kind of curtain. So the arras of evening, also drawn, we light up on the courthouse lawn between Earth and Venus, kept by this cheerful inch of green, and ten more years, fifteen, from disappearing. So grass there is all flesh is grass. Um, we all die. The river irises saw their day and they died. The arras of evening is drawn and there they are on the courthouse lawn and they light their cigarettes or possibly their joints if there's a pun on that in grass, which I'm not sure there is. But they light something up and that's beautiful. It's like keep talking while I change into the pattern of a stream. What looks like a metaphor turns out to be literally true. He does turn, turn into the pattern of a stream. He puts on a kimono. He doesn't turn into, he changes into the pattern of a stream because he puts on a kimono. Or we light up on the courthouse lawn. What could be better than to light up? But it means actually they're lighting up their cigarettes between Earth and Venus because it's the evening star, Venus is setting. And then kept by this cheerful inch of green, that is the lawn, kept by that and 10 more years. 15 from disappearing. So an inch of green before they go underground, 10 or 15 years before they go underground. Um, for Jam, it was 10 years. He died 10 years after that. Um, so that's not, the speaker of that poem is not someone who believes in reincarnation. Um, J.M. is sometimes that speaker and sometimes a speaker who does, and, but always a speaker who's skeptical and witty about the whole thing. Um, he actually came, when I was an undergraduate, um, he came to our class. The um, person teaching it was um, a friend of his, and um, one of my classmates started saying, yeah, the Ouija board is so weird. Why, let me tell you about the spirits we contacted. Um, and he was very patient. Um, so, but you can just imagine how many people tell them about their Ouija board experiences. And you can imagine that he didn't think those were real. Um, remember Milton's ghastly on-the-spot conversion um, with rival spirits and breakdown in truth or consequences in New Mexico. So always fun to have a familiar spirit, to think that you have um, direct... Uh, communication with the other world. So here's Strato, and there's this spot that burns like fire, maybe like a sunburn. Um, thinking what? He studies his fair skin, so smooth, so hairless. Oh my dear, he's in his first man's life. What would you have him do? So what does that mean? His first man's? Was he something else before? So what's the answer to that? Duh. Sorry? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Duh, yeah. That the cup shrugs eloquently. How we bore you, Ephraim. No, but the unseasoned soul, like quickly burning timber, warms a bed too soon of ashes. You indeed are coal. So there again, remember, um, in me thou seest the, the glowing of such fires on the ashes of his youth doth lie. Here's coal, remember the black rock star that Mozart turns into. Um, 
So what happens is, just um, to, to say this quickly, um, is that because radiation and because um, similar non-natural activities of humans are destroying souls, that's sort of the science fiction-y background behind this, that what's happening in this world is actually screwing up the other world. It's not that, that there's this world and the other world is, is, um, transcends it. It's what's happening in this world is destroying souls, souls that should be reincarnating, so that there no souls come from Hiroshima. Earth wears a strange girdle of new energy, and no souls, whatever, they're blasted to smithereens. Um, the other world, for whatever reason, needs souls, needs a certain population of souls. And now it's got to reach down into animal souls because the human souls are drying up. And so the animal souls have to be promoted too quickly into humanity. And Strato, this is his first human life, which is why he's so carnal, so animalistic, so attractive. So this question of animal souls first comes up with Miranda, who's the best, who can doubt she's one of us. But then there are other kinds of souls. Then Maisie the cat dies. Um, and let's just go to the end of O. Um, Maisie has died. Um, he has a long, very difficult meditation about animal souls. The mere word animal is skin through which its old sense glimmers of the soul, as in the Latin word anima or animate of the soul. And then, but oh, the cold. So it was a very cold day that he's thinking of, or cold night. Bare pillow next to mine. Kitchen clatter, Cleo pitching into the mess. Cleo being their maid in Athens. We won't see her name in writing till she retires. Cleo, we still assume, is the royal feline who seduced Caesar. So who's the royal feline who seduced Caesar? Which Cleopatra. Cleopatra, right. So Cleo, we still assume, is the royal feline who seduced Caesar, not the drab old muse who did. So what Cleo is that? It's spelled the... Yeah, C-L-I-O. Um, how did, the mu how did um, Cleo the muse seduce Caesar? He wrote history. He wrote the Gallic Wars. Um, so Caesar was seduced by two Cleos, Cleopatra, the living queen of Egypt, and then Cleo the Muse, who made him a writer of history. Yet in the end, when they see her name in writing, it's Cleo the Muse. I compose a face to kiss, who clings to me in tears. What she has thought about us all, God knows. Upstairs, remember it's cold. Upstairs, DJ's already at the simmer, phoning the company. He gets one pair of words wrong. Means to say, calorifer, furnace. As in our word calorie, which means heat. So calorifer is a producer of heat. So he means to say, calorifer, furnace. But out comes calocary, 
summer. Our summer doesn't work, he keeps complaining, while outside, cats and dogs just keep on raining. So there are the animals. It's raining cats and dogs. And what's the metaphor there? Our summer doesn't work? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so at the end, of course, of the Book of Ephraim, the furnace in Stonington is also going to go on the fritz. Okay, let us go to section um, 'm wondering whether we should do T or not. It's kind of hard, but let, let's let's do it part of it quickly. So T is the figure in the mirror stealing looks at length replied, although its lips were sealed, contrary to appearances, you and I who pick our barefoot ways toward one another through playing cards and grums of class over checkerboard linoleum have not seen eye to eye. Um, so grums of class have not seen eye to eye. We represent isms diametrically proposed. You clothe my mowing as I don your flask. Our summit meetings turn on the forever vaster, thinner skin of things, glass blowers toward a force white hot, red hot at dusk. All that we dread by midnight will have burst into a drifting, cooling soot of light. Each speck a voodoo bullet lodged in vain. Dodged. Sorry, sorry dodged in vain. Or stop with saying for it, is the moment now at sunrise? Yet the hangfire talk goes on, current events no sooner sped than din. One wand hashes the other. I bring up that not quite settled matter of a far-flushed mountain. You clam down the bold fried scenes between us. So what's going on there? Is it pure gibberish? What are you almost hearing? You're saying it is pure gibberish. What are you almost hearing there? One hand washes the other, not one wand hashes the other. So what do we call that? Spoonerisms. Yeah, that's what you get in the mirror. Remember, swirls before pine instead of pearls before swine. So there are a lot of them here. They're worth working out. You clam down the bold fried scenes. You slam down the cold fried Guys, think of when you have no money and you have to get a cheap meal somewhere. Yeah. So um, picking our way through crumbs of class, crumbs of glass. Um, so in the mirror, everything is reversed into a strange meaning, a spooneristic meaning. But this has to do with New Mexico, the bold fried scenes. That is where the first atomic bomb was tested. That is now a fried scene. That scene is fried. Um, go to um, the next page. He's remembering a moment, the waterfall that day. Chill tremblings floored a space to catch one's death in. Um, what's the joke there? You'll catch your death of cold. You either catch your death of cold or you catch your breath. Mm. Um, so those two things are, are portmanteaued together. A space to catch one's death in. Or sun shone and no wind blew and soft white inch deep mist crept over dry ice. 
wall-to-walls reverberation of a spectral chord. All the white keys at once came thudding down. The old man's heart sank. Eros, if I must, he said out loud. I go behind the falls. Make him be there, my angel, and alive. Anything you say, I will believe. So somewhere in the novel, the old man, Leo, presumably, is looking for a missing person and calling upon Eros, his Ephraim character, hoping that he's alive and hiding behind the waterfall. Sounds like it would have been an interesting novel, um, adventurous. Some later chapter would have found Sergei kneeling to drink, and further yet upstream, scudding skylark veneer on oak, skydark veneer on oak on aspen, bold forms from the hip down, overgrown with ginger sediment a retriever's pelt, risen above the running dry as bone, stones named on a picnic with DJ summers ago or only yesterday for figures. So they've been to this scene where he wants to set the scene in his novel, and there are a bunch of stones there, which they name Nebuchadnezzar, Little Nell, Miss Malinatagdag, Swan and Odette, pride of and telling proof against the clean sweep they impel so swiftly they impede. So it's a description of a waterfall, rocks there um, that make the water go faster by impeding it. Only yesterday, to as if is what that exclamation point means. Only yesterday, as if this was long ago, summers ago, or only yesterday. Only yesterday. Too violent, I once thought, that foreshortening in Proust. A world abruptly old, white-haired, a reader looking up in puzzlement to fathom whether 10 years or 40 have gone by. So I will remind you that at the end of In Search of Lost Time, after 3,000 pages, um, the narrator, who we think of and has always thought of himself as very young, goes to a party. Um, and he's very embarrassed because he didn't know that it was a masquerade, um, that everyone was supposed to come in costume and in masks. And he meets all these people whom he's known, but they're all masked, and he just doesn't get it. Why didn't he mask himself? And then he realized, no, they're not masked. They're old. He hasn't seen them for a long time. And now they're all old. And he thought it was a masquerade. And then someone comes up to him and treats him as an old man. Um, and this just comes like from one day to the next. And J.M., who wrote his senior thesis on Proust when he was an undergrad at Amherst, um, said, well, when I was young, I thought didn't make sense. Too violent, I once thought, that foreshortening in Proust. A world abruptly old, white-haired, a reader looking up in puzzlement to fathom whether 10 years or 40 have gone by. That We don't know how, old, how many years have gone by when the narrator goes to that party. Young, I mistook it for an unconvincing trick of the teller. It was truth instead, babbling through its own astonishment. So now he's that age, and he says, God, it's right, that foreshortening, that is what happens. Higher than this, I do not, dare not climb. Too near the end of the unwritten book, exeunt, severally the forces joined by Eros. So that's the end of the story. If you want to know where the story ends, it's that exeunt, severally. What does that mean, exeunt, severally? They leave? Together. Severally? 
So if you see that in a stage direction, it means they leave by different doors. Um, some go to the right, some go to the left. It means that they don't leave together. Um, so they've been together, now the scene is over, and they exit severally in different directions. Exeunt severally the forces joined by Eros. So the forces joined by Eros, the forces joined by love. But now that's over. Eros, in whose mouth the least dull fact had shown of old, a wetted pebble. So Eros is now like the river, the flowing water where they've camped, where Nebuchadnezzar and Little Nell and Swan and Odette are all the rocks there. Eros in his mouth, the least dull fact, had shown of old a wetted pebble. Now along crevices, inch rivulets, and every turning balked. Joanna jets back where she came from through a sky in flames, and with her, a symbolic apparatus requiring that she have been routed. How I never asked myself and do not now, much less ask why my characters had names that linked them with the four evangelists plus the beast familiar to one. So again, he's explaining his own symbolism. Um, but Joanna, who's flown to them, you'll recall, carrying a gift-wrapped Ouija board, is now going home. That's all over. So the novel, he's now recalling the novel, or parts of the novel, or plans for the novel, which is telling you something like what's happened to him. The forces joined by Eros are now exiting. Love is fading, is disappearing. Joanna, carrying the Ouija board, leaves. As the sun melts an undercrust of snow, Leo is healed. His little boy is born and overhangs thin wail. From my hat band, taking the wraith of withered pink, Sir Jay, I crumble it unthinking. Um, that has to do with the plant that he thinks of as being Sir Jay. It's, a lot of this is just, you'll only get on the 25th reading. And a lot of it you won't even get on the 25th reading. Um, when the urge comes to make water, a thin brass-hot stream sails out into the updraft, spattering one impotent old tree that shakes its claws. So he's hiking, and he's got to pee. The droplets atomize, evaporate to dazzlement a blankness over dusts, pale blue than paler blue. It stops at nothing. So the water disappears. He pees, and that becomes a symbol of everything disappearing. There's just pale blue and paler blue. Then we get Ephraim speaking again in section U. You are so quick, Meshia. I feel we have, we have skipping the dull classroom done it all at the salon level. Done? He asks, ah, yes. Learned his lessons, saved his face, and God's. Issues put on ice this evening, it's late last June. A long, impromptu call, our only one in ages, to take leave before DJ goes west and I to Greece. So they um, have a conversation with Ephraim for the first time in a long time. Um, Six months before he's writing this, it's last June. Remember, he's writing this in January. Um, and now he is about to go to Greece, to, back to Athens, and DJ is going to go west to see his parents. Um, 
then some strange stuff happens, and Wallace Stevens is perturbed and asks where his hat is, and everyone exits. Um, that's kind of the introducing Mirabelle and the stuff that's going to happen in the next book. Um, then go to V. Um, or go, go at the end of, to the end of you, last paragraph in you. Jung says, or if he doesn't, all but does, that God and the unconscious are one. Hmm. Well, that would explain everything, though, right? God and the unconscious are one. Um, that would be the idea that Jung has of collective memory, that we have access to the same realm of myths because they all belong to the collective memory. So if God and the unconscious are one, does that mean that the unconscious is actually divine? Or does it mean that our sense of the divine comes from our unconscious? That's the question throughout Ephraim. So it really answers nothing. Yeah. <laughs> the lapse that tides us over, hither, yon. So what lapse would that be? The lapse that tides us over, hither, yon. Word lapse in a psychoanalytic context. Uh, like a lapse of memory. Yeah, um, exactly, which is what he's about to talk about, a lapse of memory, or um, a lapsus lingua, which is the Latin term for slip of the tongue. So a Freudian slip is also called a lapse. So the lapse that ties us over, hither, yawn, we make some kind of mistake, but that turns out to get us somewhere, give us something that we need, ties us over, hither, yawn, to here, away from here, that would be the unconscious bringing us to some transcendence. Or the tide that laps us home, away from home. The tide of God that brings us to our home in our own selfhood. Laps us home, like an animal lapping us also. Away from home, even though we're not home, we are our home in our own lives, our own past, our own unconscious. Our own unconscious. On stage, the sudden trap about to yawn. Darkness impenetrable. Pit wherein two grapplers lock. Pale skin and copper skin. That is the unconscious and the, and the conscious. But also, here again, this question of race is coming up. This is um, high, effete Anglo culture, which thinks well of itself, but tries to forget the rest of the world. Uh, Merrill has a later poem called Domino, which begins, delicious, white, refined, what's he talking about? Sugar. Sugar is all that I was meant to be. So that's what he's supposed to be, delicious, white, refined. Um, so two grapplers lock pale skin and copper skin, impenetrable brilliance, Topmost pains catching the sunset of a house gone black. Ephraim, my dear, let's face it. If I fall from a high building, it's your name I'll call. OK. Now let me go downstairs to pack, begin to close the home away from home. So there's the tide that laps us home away from home. But now I have to close the home away from home. Upper story, lower doublings, tripling. Someone not Strato helping with my bags. Someone not Cleo coming to dust and water days from now. And when I stroll by ripplings, a winged lion of gold with open books stands watch above. What vigilance will keep me from one emblematic, imminent, utterly harmless failure of recall? 
let's face it, the unconscious after all, dot, dot, dot. So the winged lion is where, anyone know? Venice. Venice. So he says, Aunt, so um, Strato isn't there, he's gone. Cleo isn't there, she's gone. I'm closing the house in Athens, the home away from home. I stop in Venice on the way home, and there's a lapse of memory, an utterly harmless failure of recall, which is what we'll talk about Monday, but it's when he meets Wendell, and he forgets who Wendell is. In this story, Until Too Late, because there's Wendell, Simpson, Gopping, Ephraim's representative, but he forgets to ask anything about that. So, okay, um, reread it 25 times for Monday, and then it'll all make sense. <laughs>